My name is Alex Rosa, and I'm one of our pastors here. And today, we are kicking off a new series called The Four Loves. What we're doing is looking at how the Greek language gave four words to mean different types of love. And that's because they knew that it was hard to convey a message about how they love their families and how they love their spouses using the same word. I guess spouses and families are pretty intertwined. But in America, we don't have any tools to help us in those regards. We talk about things like tacos that we love and the Steelers that we love and our kids that we love using the same word. Although as intelligent people, we know they're different. I love tacos and I love my kids, but I love one of them more than the other. And I'll give you the hint. It's not the one that listens to me more. It's the one that we have as wonderful, amazing children that still woke up way too early today, but I still love them, and I can convey that by additional words. But in the Greek language, they had specific definitions for each kind of love to help us to know which love they were talking about. The four loves. The first one is agape. Agape is an unconditional love. It's the love that God has for us. It's also the love that God calls us to have with one another. If you've ever been to a wedding in 1 Corinthians 13 was... Read and when it says love is kind and patient and keeps no records of wrong and is not self-seeking, it's talking about agape. And it's and God was telling his people to agape one another, this unconditional love. And agape also teaches us that love is an action, not just a feeling. It's something that we can get better at. There's also the love of storge, which is family love. It's that love that a mother has for her child. It's fierce and it's passionate and it's loyal. There's also the love of phileo or phileo, which is brotherly love. And this is where we get the name for Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, because it comes right from the Greek. It's that best friend love that always having your buddies back. And today we're going to be focusing on eros. And eros is the romantic, the physical, the sexual love. And the Greeks use it to talk about the love between a man and a woman in marriage. And now, while we're going to be talking about all of that, what we're really going to be doing is looking at how God views eros, but really how God views marriage also. And that's because as I started to research this message, I looked at the New Testament and it says love a lot of times, but none of those times are by using the word eros. Eros isn't in the New Testament, which is written in Greek. However, although that is true, as Americans, we still understand what eros is. We just use the language a little differently. We say eros in the way that we say we're falling in love, or I feel this pull to someone. I feel like uh, I love them right now. We use it to describe our feeling. As our speakers uh, for this series, we looked at this book called Four Loves, and it's written by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis just did word studies on all four loves. And while he was talking about Eros, he said, Eros is kind of like falling. It's kind of like falling from a height into some water. Now, I wouldn't have completely understood what that meant if I hadn't just gone to the Dominican Republic. We just went with a team on a mission trip. But on the last day, the missionary we were working with, Amanda Bellaguer, said, would anyone like to go and jump off a waterfall? And I said, yes. Now, I didn't know that there would be 15 waterfalls, but I still said yes, and a team of us went and did that. And it was pretty safe. I mean, one of them I almost slipped and, and I, well, I did slip and I almost died. However, we got footage of another one, not the one where I smacked my face against the water. And so I just wanted to show you to give an image of this idea of falling.
Come back up. There he is. <laughs> yeah, I was okay. All right. I was okay. I mean, spoiler, I'm here today, so I was all right. But it was from about 25 feet up. And then the guy that walked us there climbed like 10 extra feet and then did a backflip, which really made you feel like a wimp. Because at the top, whenever he tells you to jump, it is terrifying. You look down and you're like, it's probably okay, but what if it's not that deep? What if I smack my legs? What am I going to do? So it's scary, but it's also exciting and it's exhilarating. And C.S. Lewis says that's like Eros. In America nowadays, we'll say that that's kind of like dating. It's scary and it's exciting and it's exhilarating, but asking someone out isn't a definite yes, and so it's kind of nerve-wracking, but then you do it and it's exciting. C.S. Lewis also says, once you hit the water and you're swimming, it's kind of like marriage. Why? Because you need different muscles and you need different consistency while you're swimming that you don't need when you're falling. So whenever you jump, you're dating, and then whenever you're swimming, you're married. And what does that mean practically for us today? Well, eros can help people arrive into marriage, but it won't sustain marriages. Eros will help us get into that marriage, but it won't sustain us. And what is the goal of Eros? Well, ideally, the goal of Eros is to get married. It doesn't always happen, but that is the goal. To date, we want to find a spouse. And so Eros leads us to marriage. And the cool thing is God's given us this blessing of Eros, the fact that it doesn't completely go away when we are married. It still shows up. Now, it doesn't always last for every single day, but it still shows up, which is good because that means we have kids and we're so attracted to our spouse. And I pray that you are so attracted to your spouse. And, and thank goodness that, that we have some Eros in our lives still. Yet, what C.S. Lewis is saying is it doesn't sustain those marriages. And while Eros is not mentioned in God's word, we are going to dig into what God has to say about marriage because it is talked about all throughout the Old and the New Testament. So as we focus on what God has to say for the goal of Eros, we're going to look at what his word says. And so this message is for you if you're here and you're married. I pray that it will bless you and your spouse. If you look to get married someday, this message is also for you, and I pray that you will you know, hold it in, in your, your mind and in your heart and apply it down the road. This message is also for you if God has called you to a life of singleness, which there's precedent for that in God's word, because there will be people in your life, inevitably, that go through eros or marriage, and in those situations, I pray that you'll be able to give them wisdom. And it's needed because our culture does not view marriage the same way as God does. In fact, a lot of people in our culture, once they lose that feeling of falling in love, the eros, C.S. Lewis says that what happens is they start swimming, they don't like it, they get out of the pool, go to a different diving board, and jump in from there. And then if they don't like it, they'll continue that process. And we've seen that to be true today. I have someone very close to me that decided the day after her wedding that she was going to leave her husband. And in a conversation with her, I, I asked her, why? Like, what did he do? What happened? She said, well, no, he didn't do anything. I just didn't feel the same way I felt when we started dating. And I assumed after the marriage preparation, after the wedding, that I wake up the next morning with that feeling of falling in love all over again. I said, well, that's not really guaranteed for us. And that's not going to happen every single day. It's a choice of love. That's why God gives us this agape love and calls us to agape one another. It's a choice to go into marriage. And then it's a choice daily to love your spouse. And this is what God's word has to say about it. In fact, Paul wrote to the early church in Ephesus, and he gave some instruction on how husbands and wives must interact with one another. He said this, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For a husband, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. One time I was on a phone call and the person on the line said, I hate what God has to say regarding marriage. And I said, okay, let's flesh it out. What do you mean? And she said, well, I hate the fact that God says that a husband gets to lord over his wife with her having very little say. I said, oh, well, that's not how I read it. So can we read it together? So I put it, the phone on speakerphone. I brought up Ephesians 5, 21 through 25, and then we read it out loud. And then I said, well, the beginning of it actually says that the two are supposed to submit to one another, that there is a partnership that God planned for us to have. God wants to partner with us on this planet, and he wants us to partner with our spouse as well. He meant it to be a partnership where both people submit to one another. And yes, God's word does say that the husband gets the role of leadership, but in God's words, what that means is that when there is that tie, that father breaks that tie, but they are still working together in a partnership. But God also says the reward for being that leader, for being able to make that final call, is that you must love your wife the same way that Jesus loves the church. And how did Jesus love you and me? He died on the cross. He died while we were not worthy of his death or his love. He died while we were still in our sin before we had done anything right. He died so we could come to know him and be with him forever. And God says that husbands, love your wives in the same way. C.S. Lewis expounded upon this. He said, the headship, or this headship charged to the husband then is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't believe C.S. Lewis is saying that our marriages should feel like a crucifixion. That's not part of the deal here. And I know that someone might be writing down right now, wife receives most. But that's what God is is saying in his word, that the husband serves his wife. Why? Because love is about sacrifice and choosing. It's not just a feeling. And in that, we get one of the best ways to differentiate between God's love for us and the love our world has for different things. And this leads us to our take-home point, the one point that this message is centered around, and it's this. Real love involves choice and sacrifice. Choice and sacrifice. As we go over these next couple of weeks, we're gonna see that in storge and agape and phileo, which all three of those support uh, sustaining and healthy and sacrificial marriage better than Eris does. As we look at them, we're gonna see that all of them involved sacrifice or putting someone and their needs above yourself and a choice to continue that love. I believe that eros isn't mentioned in the New Testament because it is the most dissimilar love to God's love. It is self-seeking in a way that God says his love never is. Eros, at its worst, wants to be catered to instead of wanting to serve other people. It's also fleeting, and it doesn't last every single day. It's not sustaining. And C.S. Lewis even says, at its worst, Eros wants to be worshipped. He said this in that book. Of all loves, he, meaning Eros, is at his height most godlike, therefore most prone to demand our worship, 
of himself, he always tends to turn being in love into a sort of religion. We notice this. If you have friends that fall quickly into love, you might notice that sometimes they abandon your friendship for a season. In high school, we saw that all the time. As soon as one of our buddies got a girlfriend, it was like they did not exist in our friend group anymore until she broke his heart, and then he was right back. I don't know what I saw in her, but they were right back. I was that kid too. I remember there was one time we had a game night plan. We were going to hang out all night, and a girl texted me and said, you want to hang out? I said, yeah, I'm free. I got nothing going on. And I told my buddies, my bad. Uh, I got to go. And that's somewhat what Eros does. It draws us to make decisions that are not based around what, what we maybe should do. But those are innocent reasons. Those are innocent effects, rather. We also see over the years, and maybe you have this in in your life, maybe you've seen this happen, where Eros has caused people in the name of worshiping Eros to leave their friends or their spouse or their kids or cheat on someone because there's this spiritual pull that sometimes comes over people, again, in this act of worship. But let me get it clear. Eros is not inherently evil. It's not. God created it for good. He created it so that we would be drawn to our spouse and that we'd continue to be with them. He's given us sex and he's asked us to enjoy it as well. And we get kids from that as well, which allows our world to continue and our worship to continue as well. So there are good benefits for Eros. But when it's out of control, when it turns into worship, it will consume us and it will not reflect the kind of marriage that God wants us to have. And he has set us up with a plan. He has given us instructions for what marriage must be like. And he did that at the very beginning of time. Right away in the book of Genesis, God detailed how marriages should operate, how they should come together, and what must sustain them. So let's go right to Genesis chapter 1, and let's look into what God's word has to say. It says this, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. So in the beginning, God set the precedent, the standard. Now, you might notice that this is at the very beginning of the Bible. And so Adam and Eve were given this instruction. However, they did not have earthly parents. So God's not saying this is how it is operating right now. He's saying this is how it must operate going forward, that a man and a woman leave their family, come together, are joined into one, and stay together for the rest of their lives. That was the plan. And again, once we follow God's plan, we'll do that. But sometimes Eros convinces us to do something different. Once again, it's not evil, but it might lead us astray, away from God's plan. It's very similar to money in that regard. Money by itself is neutral. Money isn't evil on its own accord, but we can take money and we can use it for good. We can give to the poor and give to God's mission to spread his word throughout the, the, the whole earth. We give it to, to widows, to orphans, or we could be obsessed with it and we could steal, lie, and cheat to get it. We could hoard it. We could take it for our own good. In the same way, Eris is neutral on itself, but if when we follow God's plan for it, we are following his ways and we get the blessings of that. But when we don't and we follow the desires of our heart only, then we can be led astray. 
And after God gave this precedent to the people, people did begin to be led astray, and they sinned. Now, a lot of times when we say sin, the first thing that comes to our mind is something dark or something sinister or nefarious, but really the Hebrew word for sin was the word hata. And hata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Hatza is to fail or miss the goal. And what is the goal in God's life? And he's given us one as image bearers of him. He's given us a goal to follow a plan for your life, for my life as well. And the goal is to love God with everything we have and to love people as well, to love others. The goal is to love God and to love others. Jesus, while he walked this earth, was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And during his response, he summed up all the laws and all the commandments by saying, we are to love God with everything that we are and to love our other people as we love ourselves. And to love God, again, is not just a feeling. It's not just liking God. When God's word says we are to love him, it means we are to follow him, to walk in his plans, to obey his desires for our lives. And when we love others, we care for them as God desires us to care for them. And when we don't love others, we fail to love God because we're not following his plans. And so no matter what people are doing, we're called to love others and to love God. And why am I saying that in a message about Eros? Well, because with Eros, sometimes it tries to convince us that what it wants supersedes what God's plans are for our lives. We've seen that oftentimes in New Life students. When I was a small group leader, I'd have students that, that would come to me and they'd be like, hey, I met this new girl, we're dating now, and I'm like, great. And my co-small group leader myself would always ask like, hey, do they know Jesus? And if they responded no, they would try to find some other answer to try to make it all right. They'd be like, God, yeah, but, but she's really hot, so you don't understand. I'm like, okay, well, that, <laughs> that's not the question. Is she following Jesus? And they're like, no, but you know what? Nothing's going to change. I'm still going to come to youth group. I'm still going to follow God. And maybe she will too. Too many times, however, what ended up happening was that student would leave and we wouldn't see them again. Why? Because Eros tried to convince them and did successfully that what it once superseded God's plans for us. And know this, when we put anything, even our feelings and desires over God's plans for our lives, we're missing the mark and sinning. We're missing the mark. We're not following the plan. And throughout history, this happened. After the Garden of Eden, where God established marriage should be man and woman together forever, people missed the mark and hata and sinned and did other things. For instance, we had kings and, that were following God, but did not follow his perfect plan and had multiple wives, not part of God's plan. In God's word, we even see that there were men with men and women with women. We also see that there were fathers with their daughters and daughters or sons with their mothers-in-law. And then we also saw Jewish men who made laws, rules to allow them to get a divorce with ease. That they could just say they wanted a divorce, the woman had no say in it, and they could go marry someone else. All of that against God's plan. And then when the world was taken over by the Greeks and eventually the Romans, there was a culture of promiscuity that took over the whole world where they allowed all kind of different sexual sin. And all of that led up to Jesus walking the earth. After the garden and the sin that entered, people walking away from God's path in a lot of different ways, not just in the name of Eros. Jesus entered in, though, and he was asked a very pointed question regarding marriage. And this was by some Jewish leaders, and his answer not only answered their 
question directly, but it also, as he often did, went much deeper. And he helped the people to understand God's plan, and he redirected them to what God said at the very beginning of time. It's recorded by Jesus' disciple Matthew. It says this in Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? This record they record, rather, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. What Jesus said was radical in his day. A lot of times we think of a sacrificial loving relationship between a husband and a wife that lasts forever was always conservative or always traditional, but it was anything but while Jesus walked this earth. The Greeks, the Romans, the Jews did not abide by this. They didn't follow God's plan for marriage. So as Jesus said that, you could imagine the crowd was pretty angry with him because it was not lining up with what they wanted to do. But Jesus was letting them know the plan that God had for them. And when God makes a plan, he never makes it randomly. He gives us a reason for it, and he knows what's best because he created us. And one of the reasons he created marriage the way that it is meant to operate is because there's something about marriage between a husband and wife that lasts forever that reflects God's relationship with himself. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three and they're also one. And so when we join together two different people into one, different roles, different personalities into one, we reflect the Trinity and we get to know God a little deeper. There's also something about how God has called a husband and wife to submit to one another and sacrifice for one another that's very like the Trinity. The son obeyed the father to the cross, even though he said, God, if father, if you could take this from me, I would appreciate it. And God said, go to the cross. And he listened. We also see the spirit, the Holy Spirit was sent out by Jesus. And so he submitted as well. And so God's called us to do the same thing. We can even take that further. When we have children, we know God a little deeper because we understand how he views us when we look at our children. So God has this plan behind it. But God always has a plan when he makes rules and laws for us to follow. He never does it randomly. He never does it to, to ruin our fun. He does it for a purpose. And in the Old Testament, there are a lot of laws. There actually are 613 unique laws in the Old Testament. And generally, they're separated into two different categories. One of them is morality. God wants us to live righteously like him, to live good lives like he is all good and perfect. So there's rules that are meant for morality. There are also rules that were meant to simply set the people apart, whether to set them apart to be holy or to just set them apart from other cultures, to let the world know that they are different because they're worshiping God. One of those laws that came into place, and it was repeated three times in the Old Testament, was just like that. That law was to not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Now, you might think of that and be like, wow, that's weird. And that's weird that it's repeated three times. It's kind of evil. I mean, boiling a baby in his mother's milk is messed up, whether it's a goat or not. But the reason why God said it was because it is kind of evil, but also because the Canaanite people, which were enemies of God's people, and they worshiped false gods, and they often sacrificed their children to false gods, often boiled a baby in its mother's milk. 
And it was despicable. So God said, don't be like them. Make sure that you are set apart so the world knows that you are not like them, that your God is different than what they believe and how they act. So God gave them that rule for a reason. And when you look at marriage, he did the same thing. He actually hit both marks, morality and set apart. And the idea of two people, a man and a woman together forever, was different, was set apart from the culture and the day that Jesus walked the earth, and it still sets us apart today. There's this wonderful book by John Mark Comer. It's called Live No Lies. It's a challenging read, but it's a good read. And what he does is he takes the lies of the enemy and walks through what God's word and the truth of the Bible has to say regarding those lies. And he does talk about marriage. He actually talks about how it's set up for morality reasons, but also to make us set apart. He says this regarding morality. I think it's marriage between men and women, the primary test of our generation's fidelity to the way of Jesus or to the world's ideas and ideologies. And then regarding set apart, he said, sexuality has always been an arena where followers of Jesus stand in sharp contrast to the world from the Acropolis of Athens, to the sidewalks of Brooklyn. What we do regarding our marriages is a testimony to the world that we follow Jesus. It always has been. When we follow Jesus by following his commands for marriage, it sets us apart and shows people that we're willing to listen to his words even when they're difficult or even when they, they are complete in contrast to what Eros wants us to do, our feelings and our desires. When we follow God, whether it's through these this topic through arrows, or it's anything else, we show God, the world who our God is. And then as we see in history, and John Mark Comer talks about this in his book, when we follow God, there are certain blessings that come with it. You see, when we follow God's plans, not only do we get the blessings of being with God, but we get to walk with him as he's designed us to walk with him. We get blessings from following him. But when we follow Eros in the way that we worship Eros, as a culture and as individuals, individuals, we see that negatively impact ourselves and those around us. We actually have seen that since the 1960s. And John Mark Comer does a great job of illustrating what has happened in the last 60 plus years. So this is a longer quote, but I'm going to read it because I thought it was beneficial for us today. John Mark Comer said this, The sexual liberal re- liberation revolution of the 1960s set in motion a cascade effect. The reversal of the long-standing moral consensus around promiscuity, which separated sex from marriage, worked in tandem with the advent of birth control and the legalization of abortion, which separated sex from procreation, which moved on to the legalization of no-fault divorce, which turned a covenant into contract, and separated sex from intimacy and fidelity. Then did Tinder and hookup culture, which separated sex from romance and turned it into a way to get your needs met. From there, it's moved on to the LGBTQI plus revolution, which separated sex from male-female binary. The current transgender wave, which is an attempt to separate gender from biological sex. And the nascent polyamory movement, an attempt to move beyond two-person relationships amid the rev- amid the revolution, the questions nobody seems to even be asking are, is this making us better people, more loving people, or even happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our liberation? 
Now, John Mark Comer goes through his book and he gives evidence from surveys and through science to help us understand the meaning to that. But you and I both know that there's very few people that we could question in the world right now with the, with the ask, is this world healthier and happier than it was 60 years ago? And have that person say yes. We know that it's not. It's rare to find someone that would say yes to that because as we see, the world continues to make decisions that make us less healthy and less happier. So let's look at the findings that John Mark Comer had. Well, one of them was that he looked simply at the surveys that are made in America every year to see what the happiness levels are for our country. Every year since 1960s, those levels have just gone down. Never up, just gone down. Studies also show that Families that go through a divorce cause a traumatic event for kids of all ages. And psychologists say that those kids that go through the divorce have a hard time making intimate and deep, emotional, healthy relationships into adulthood. And this lack of secure attachment is wrecking havoc in our society. And I'm a child of this. I know that if it wasn't for the grace of God and a good Christian counselor, I wouldn't be married today because of the anxieties and the, the trouble that it caused me when thinking even about marriage. Studies also show that when someone lives together before they're married, they are more likely to not get married or to get a divorce or slash and to have long-term trust issues. Science has discovered that there are these chemicals that release when we have sex, and those chemicals tie two individuals together in such a way that creates intimacy. Science has also discovered that when you have more partners that you sleep with, your body is less capable of producing that same intimacy through those chemicals. It's just not able to happen because our bodies weren't created to continue to release those with different people, which is crazy, but it sets up perfectly with what God said. It makes perfect sense for how God created us to be two people into one forever. Studies show that sex reassignment therapy, or, uh, surgery and hormone therapy don't actually, as surveys show, improve someone's mental health or their happiness levels, which are the main reasons that people get either of those procedures. We also see that there is a much documented but not enough talked about reality where women have negative physical and mental effects that linger during and post an abortion. It's also much documented but not talked about nearly enough how porn ruins families and marriages and lives, yet it's still a multi-billion dollar industry. As we look at our society and what has happened over the last 60 years, we see that there's a lot of things that happen in the name of arrows, of this feels good or this feels right, but as we see, the results of them are not Good. That God has given us a plan forward, and while sometimes it feels restrictive, he's done it on purpose to help us to live life as it was designed to live, to live with him in an abundant life that he's created us to live. You see, what happens is Eros promises something that it can't deliver. It promises everlasting happiness if you just follow its whims, but it can't actually deliver that because it's the most fleeting and temperamental of all of the loves. Whereas God promises everlasting joy, which is ha different than happiness, and he actually can deliver it on this planet and forever. But don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not here today to bring guilt on anyone that is struggling with any of these things. That's not my rule. 
Our role here is simply to bring truth and love. You see, all of us have sins in our life, whether it's something that you're struggling with that was on this list or it's something different, whether it's lying or cheating or gossiping or worrying, you and I both sin. In fact, all of us have sinned so much that none of us would receive entry into heaven if it wasn't for the gracious gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. If he did not die for us, we would not have a way to enter into relationship with him. So it's by the grace and mercy that Jesus loves us that we're able to enter into relationship with him. And so as we look at this, let us not be defined by what we have done, whether it's good or bad. Let us instead be defined by the image bearers that we are created to be by God. Let us be defined by the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, and not by our actions. Levi Lesko wrote this wonderful book called Swipe Right. And in it, he talks generally to young adults, but it's a good read for anyone about many of these subjects. And in that book, he talked about this forgiveness that we receive. He said this, We brand ourselves and give ourselves permanent labels. I'm a divorcee. I'm an orphan. I declared bankruptcy. I'm a felon. Or even something as simple as I'm not a mourning person. As though that is what we will always be. But the power of the cross is that your identity doesn't come from your activity or your life's brutality, but from the perfect love of Jesus. You are not defined by your failures or pain, but by his forgiveness. Amen? All of us. You and I fall short of God's perfect and glorious standard. We all have sin that we struggle with, but God said he has a perfect way for us and he wants to take those sins out of our lives. And so let us not allow those sins to define us. Let's instead step out of what we want and step into the plan that God has for us. And when we do that, let us love others and love God. And as we love others, let's not listen to what the world says regarding how we view others. You see, the world says that you can do one of two things. You either have to embrace someone for their sin and celebrate it, or... You have to hate them for what they're doing. Well, Jesus says that's not the only ways. He has given us a narrow road. He's given us a narrow path that says you can admit that there is sin that pulls people away from God's perfect plan, hata, that takes us away from that, but we can still love people amidst their sin. We don't agree with it. We don't celebrate it, but we can acknowledge it and still love people. And that only happens through the supernatural love of Jesus. But he's called us to that. And it is difficult. There will be things that pull us on either side that want us to go one way or another, but through the grace of God, we can follow his path. And that's what we're called to do. That's why we started New Life, to share, grow, and live the new life of Jesus with the world, one person at a time. And in that world, we know that we are all sinners. We relate in that, and we all need a Savior in Jesus. So when we interact and we talk to people and we see people that struggle with different sins, whatever it is, again, stealing, lying, cheating, a sexual sin, whatever it is, we can still hold firm to the truth and plan of God while also loving those around us. And that's what God has called us to do. If at any point in this message that there was there something that, whether it convicted you or left you with questions or made you feel a certain way, and you want to talk more about those things, I'd encourage you to reach out and do that. We're going to put my email up here right now. And I'd love to say that I can talk to every single one of you right after service. And I can talk to a couple of you, but not everyone, um, time won't allow that. However, if you email me, but any questions you have, anything made you feel uncomfortable, anything you want more detail on, whatever, because we're just scratching the surface on a lot of this, please reach out to me. I will respond to you. 
As we go throughout our week, as we leave this, we have a next step. We always do this week, something that we can apply to our lives right now. And it's not specifically regarding marriage, although that was the main topic today. I know not everyone is married, but our next step is something that we can apply in marriage and outside of marriage to follow God's perfect plan for our lives. And the next step is this. I will love God and love others this week through my actions, thoughts, and words. And loving God is not always easy. It's hard. Sometimes we have to fight our own desires. We have to fight eros in our lives. We have to fight what we want to do to follow God's plan. And loving others isn't always easy either. But we can do both of those through the power of God. And he gives us the strength through his Holy Spirit. So let us abide in Jesus this week. Let us rest in him. Let us ask him for his power. And let us live in the victory that he's given us over sin and death. Amen? If you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you'd like to. You like that relationship that will last forever. And Jesus actually calls us his bride in in the word of God. Why? Because he wants to join with us and be with us now and for all eternity. How do you come to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Well, here at New Life, we say it's as simple as A, B, and C. A, we start by admitting that he is our Savior, our rescuer from sin and death, and, and we ask him to come into our lives. We admit that we're sinners and that he's our savior. We also believe, we believe in Jesus as that savior, but also as our Lord, our master, our owner, our God. And then we confess Jesus as our savior and Lord, but we also confess our sins and we commit to living this life, not by ourselves, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. So right now I'm going to pray. And if you're in here and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and savior, And I'm not asking if you've gone to church before, if your parents trust in Jesus, but if you've never given your life over to Jesus, we're going to give an opportunity to do that. And what we're going to simply say is that we believe in God, we admit that who we are and who he is. And I'm going to pray as if I were you. And I encourage you during this prayer to simply say the words, but make them your own, in your own heart, in your own mind, as we talk to the God of the universe. Would you please pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for being here today. I thank you for bringing us here and for loving and caring for us. And God, right now, I pray that you'll be with with all of us as we lift up these prayers, but specifically hear the prayers of those who don't yet know you as Lord and Savior, but would like to as we pray. Dear God, I believe you are the one true God. I believe your one and only son, Jesus, died and rose again for me. Forgive me of my sins and make me a new creation. Join me into your family now. And Holy Spirit, guide me every step of the way, now and forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.